Tonight, I want to talk about the nature of America. I chose the, this as the last lecture because it seemed appropriate. In light of this venture by the Scholars Program, obviously to try to infuse American Judaism, uh, the American Jewish community with a Jewish neshama, with a Jewish experience, and to be concerned about its future, obviously, in light of the statistics that I mentioned to you, the question of the future of the community is very much an open question. Not that we'll disappear, but we'll maybe become like the Amish. You know, we'll be a small little group of quaint people, mostly Hasidim, uh, with a gartel and so on. They'll come Sundays to take pictures of us, like we go to Lancaster, <laughs> Pennsylvania, you know. And uh, so, and Ari will be there with his gartel and his, you know. So, right? I mean, I know, you know. He thinks he ran away from Boston, Maimonides, Princeton, came to California, they wouldn't find him. They'll find him, they'll find him. So, I want to talk about American Judaism. Uh, first of all, the nature of America, and this is related also, I've talked a little bit, though not as much as uh, sometimes about the Shoah. And I guess everybody, seeing there's really an audience of people who are Jewishly interested, I see the same faces over and over. Uh, you've probably discussed the question I've discussed with friends and colleagues, students ask all the time, is America different? Uh, we have some survivors in the group, we have people from well, Viviana from Germany, we have some survivors from Eastern Europe. It's a natural question also given all the historic experience of the Jewish people, could it happen here? There was actually a movie like that about uh, 40 years ago, I think, I remember a movie that was made on, with that title. And as somebody who's a student of Jewish matters, both uh, intellectually and really existentially, someone who's interested in the continuity of the Jewish people, I have thought about that issue and tried to think about it in terms of the American context. And I want to share with you uh, a view, uh, which I think is sound, and which I hope, even more than I think, I hope is sound. And that is that the Jewish experience in America is really a distinctive experience. And it breaks a pattern of exilic existence, of diaspora of existence, of galut from the time of the Chorban Bayacheni, from the second temple, perhaps even from the destruction of the first temple. And this for many reasons. First of all, the nature of America. Not Jews, America. You know, America is a unique phenomenon in world history. We are the first really ideological society. If you think of other societies, they are what anthropologists call material societies. That is to say, they're based on common ancestry, they're based on common language, they're based on common ethnicity. In America, that was not true. The ethnic stock, the common ethnic historic Americans, all were killed by disease in the 16th, 17th centuries, as you know. In its place came a new society imported, of course, from Europe, but what's particularly sanguine and relevant is that this ideology turned out, even though the people who brought it were from Europe, this ideology turned out to be benign vis-a-vis -vis the larger polity and also the Jewish polity. It valued things like immigration. It valued things like religious freedom. It valued things like diversity and liberalism, all of which I'll come back to. It could have been otherwise. It could have come to the new world and created a society which was prejudiced, full of stereotypes about Jews and other people, hatreds of various kinds, institutions that were not benign. This country was different. And from the first, it valued things that worked out to be good for the Jews. Two basic values to start were, of course, individualism. Right from the beginning, it valued individualism. And it allowed people to pursue their own futures without being defined by the group to which they belonged, an idea I've talked about in medieval, relation to medieval times. And also very much they encouraged economic individualism and capitalism. From the first, America was really a rough and tumble kind of economic order. Everything wasn't owned. There was no feudal aristocracy to object. There was nobody who held all the land. There was nobody who held all the wealth. There was nobody who had the privilege and was concern to keep it. In addition, the liberalism of the early founders meant freedom, right? All men are born free and independent, says the Declaration of Independence. And they meant it. That was a serious issue. It led to a whole bunch of uh, related issues of importance. 
the autonomy of the individual. People can make choices. The idea of justice from oppression became a cardinal doctrine of our notion of the liberal state. The pursuit of private happiness. All men are free to pursue private happiness. <coughs> the limits on government power. Belief in the will of the people. The idea of natural rights that came from Locke and Montesquieu. And also, frankly, the value of hard work and labor, which was a very important principle. And all of that created a Republican form of government about which all of you know. Now let's look at a couple of issues that you may not think about when you think about America, but have been extraordinarily repercussive vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish people. The first is the Puritan heritage. If we were giving this lecture in Boston, it would be more obvious because you'd know up the road there's a Bethlehem, there's a Jericho, there's a Jerusalem, there's a Jordan River, there's all the biblical names in Massachusetts and uh, Vermont and New Hampshire. Here the names are Spanish, so it doesn't have the same resonance. But the fact is that the Puritan heritage was crucially important. Why it was important is this. Though the Puritans didn't like Jews, they didn't like Jews. The fact is they saw America as the new Israel. And that meant that they saw this as the land of salvation. They saw this land as being under a special divine providence. They saw this land as a place that God had chosen to work his special providential order and greatness. Even on the dollar bill, you see, though it's of late design, you see the idea, right, of America as the providential land. Here is the eye, which is what? The eye of providence. And the pyramid that you see is really the Egyptian pyramid. And here is the Red Sea, which is being the eye of providence is leading people across the Red Sea. The Puritans came from Europe to the United States, which is the new Israel. Now, in that, they also read the Bible as arguing that they had an obligation, a salvific mission, to bring immigrants, to bring people, to give them refuge, to allow them to land. And you see that early on. John Winthrop was called the New Moses in early Puritan literature. And all of the early symbolism led them to think of America as a place of a special destiny, a place of a special destiny. And that was important, because every time immigrant groups came, the history of America has been the history of a special destiny, manifest destiny, as it was called, with a less, uh, perhaps less uh, desirable tinge. The second thing about America that everyone knows, but you have to think about, is the openness of America. This in two senses, or three senses. One, it was open geographically, right? And Orange County is proof that it was open. We started on the East Coast. I started about the Puritans who got off the boat at the Mayflower in Plymouth. And slowly, we worked our way westwards, and then we went to the Midwest, and then the people went to St. Louis and the uh, what do they call them, covered wagons, and they came west in the covered wagons, and they discovered California, right? It's been open, always open. Now, that meant that the Jews were not immediately put into a competitive situation in an onerous and a difficult way with their neighbors. There was always somewhere that was open. The second thing that was open was the economy. That's a crucial thing, that the economy was open first on the East Coast, People were given, actually, uh, you know, in Georgia when Oglethorpe started, he welcomed people, gave them land. Virginia, they gave people land. They wanted people to come and be part of the economic order. Now, that is a pattern of Jewish historical experience. Wherever there's openness, Jews flourish. So, for example, take the Ottoman Empire. When the Ottoman Empire comes into being in the late 15th, 16th centuries, it's open. And it welcomes Jews. And Jews come into the Ottoman, era, Ottoman Empire and flourish. When the Ottoman Empire starts to close down, the Jews move backwards economically, politically. In our time, it's not only in the United States, but open societies like South Africa, which was open at least to whites, and Australia, which was really a frontier country where Jews have done very well. I don't know if all of you have traveled in Australia, but if you go there, you're astonished by the uh, size of the Jewish community, the quality of the Jewish community, the success of the Jewish community. All over, wherever there's openness, and even going back further, if you look at Jews in Islamic Spain, when Islamic Spain was first created by the Muslims in the seventh century, they wanted to have a society that would be open to Muslims and Jews, to be a quality society, succeeding the Visigoths. 
Jews flourished in Spain. Then it closed down. The Carolingian Empire and the Char uh, Charlemagne, they flourished. Then it closed down. So openness has been a crucial issue. Now, economically, what's important to the United States, it's not that it's only been open in the past, it's open today. By open, I mean, think of all the new industries, right? You here are at the center, well, 30 miles or 60 miles from Hollywood, right? That was a new industry. The Gentiles didn't need to make Hollywood. They already had Standard Oil. So Mayer came and uh, whoever, you know, all the titans of... Uh, of uh, Hollywood came, right? Was it a mayor that they told the story about? He had a very big funeral because everybody wanted to make sure he was dead because he <laughs> had a very unsavory reputation among his colleagues. But the fact is they created Hollywood. Then they created uh, Paley, a name some of you may know. If you're a little old, you may remember he was the head of CBS. Doesn't sound Jewish, but Bill Paley was Jewish. Then uh, you have other industries, for example, sports. In our time, sports is one of the biggest of all uh, industries. The man who created the NFL really made it big time was the Jew Pete Rozell, advertising man. And all the football teams today are owned by Jews. Tish owns the Giants, and uh, Bob Kraft owns the uh, Patriots. Patriots, and uh, Lurie owns Philadelphia, and Dan Snyder owns Washington, and Rosenblum used to own the Colts. Uh, and I don't know who owns out here uh, on the West Coast, but it's astonishing. Al Davis. Al Davis, of course, in Oakland. And even in baseball, which was the Wasp Bastion Par Excellence, you now have Jewish baseball owners, which is astonishing. So Jews in sports, Jews in television, Jews in Hollywood, Jews also, of course, like, uh, what was his name, Gray Grove, who was the head of uh, Intel which was a, right, Andy Grove was a, a, a survivor. Uh, I think the man here who gave the money, Samueli, is, isn't he? He was either a survivor family or whatever, was open, Broadcom. So you're all the beneficiaries of that indirectly and directly. You see how it plays out. That the newspapers, we Jews own the Times, though they don't like to admit it. Salzburger always gets offended <laughs> when he's reminded that he comes from a Jewish family and he always tells the interviewer, I'm an Episcopalian. Right? Maybe if it was Jewish, the stock would be doing better. And uh, the, the, Washington, the Washington Post, of course, Shapiro. And so all over, the openness of American life has been really a crucial thing. The advertising industry, wherever there's newness. Today, the, the internet, the biotech companies, around 128 on the East Coast, around Boston, there's a road called 128. It's like Silicon Valley up in uh, the area around Stanford. All these startup companies with Jewish talent and Jewish uh, entrepreneurial skills, a really remarkable openness. In addition, other features of American life are significant. For example, we're not the largest minority. Now, that may be something that never dawned on you as being consequential, but it is. I can't give you a rule. By a rule, I mean it would be ironclad, like you, know, you step out the second floor window without a parachute, you fall to the ground. That's a rule called gravity. <laughs> I don't want to give you a rule, but I want to give you an impression based on some close study that the main targets of bigotry in a society are almost always, if not always, the largest minority. And the reason is evident. If you're the largest minority, you're the threat, right? So the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire were the largest minority. The Ukrainians in the Stalinist world were the largest minority. Blacks in America were in the millions. Jews were of small numbers. Wherever there's a minority that's bigger, they are the brunt of the assault, of the attack. The fact is that in America, we have always been lucky that we were never the largest majority, of a largest minority. The second thing that's interesting about America is even minorities are not fixed in America. By that I mean you have stereotypes, but it's very interesting. From the first, when people applied stereotypes, certainly to Jews, like alien, foreigner, and so on, they didn't apply them to the Jews the way they applied them to others. It's interesting, from the 1850s on, they applied them very, very, very rapidly, for example, to the Irish. And they always applied them, of course, to the Italians, who had all kinds of negative things said about them. But about Jews, it was very interesting. There wasn't the same kind of uh, animus. In addition, I'm sure there are many lawyers here in the, in the audience. How many lawyers? There must be just a few. Oh, it's a half a dozen, because they're very Jewish. My wife's an English barrister. 
the number of Jews in the law is, of course, high. We'll answer for it. Uh, the fact is, you know the joke about the priest and the rabbi and the lawyer, and they all go down in a plane crash, and the sharks swim around, and they eat the rabbi, and they eat the priest, but they don't eat the lawyer. And so after 24 hours, the shark says, what are you doing? Uh, the lawyer says to the shark, what are you doing? He says, professional courtesy. So <laughs> the fact is that, that lawyers make up a big percentage. But the fact of the law is very, very interesting in this sense. There are two kinds of tradition, legal traditions. One is the positive, what we might call the positive tradition of Europe, where you have to make legal change before the change occurs, as compared to the English tradition, which is called the common law tradition, where change sort of runs ahead of the institutions. It's very curious. Now, the reason I mention that is, as you know, there were Spanish in America, there were French in America, but the dominant influence that came to really shape America's uh, laws and shape America's culture were the British, the English law. And in America, from the, oh, really the colonial period on, the common law was very accommodating. That is, you say, even though in some way we shouldn't be doing certain things, we were able to do them, and then the law changed to allow us. For example, there was an incident in Maryland as early as 1659. That's early. And in 1659, there was a man named Lambrosa, who was a Jewish physician, Svartic, you can tell by the name. And in 1659, the colony of Maryland that had been started by Catholics had a rule that you couldn't say things against Christ, the blasphemy law. Lambrosa was a man of strong opinions, and he seems to have let it be known that he didn't think so highly of Christianity. So some of his uh, neighbors who were unsympathetic to him went to the heads of the city of Baltimore, and they said, we want to put him on trial for blasphemy. The people advising the heads of the Baltimore colony said, let's leave this alone. They never brought him to trial. And after that, from 1659, there never was another blasphemy trial in Maryland. It fell away. The common practice, the common law, took a kind of turn. In New York City in 1690, the Jews went to the heads of the community and said, we want to build a synagogue. And the head of the community said, I can't, the English, right, moved from the Dutch to Peter Stuyvesant and the English. He said to them, I can't give you permission to build a synagogue because according to English law, you're not supposed to be here. England had expelled the Jews in 1290. Cromwell had tried to readmit them in the 1660s and failed. But Cromwell winked, and they came to resettle in England. That's the beginning of the resettlement of Jews in England. And the governor of New York winked, and you got the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. Many of you probably know the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. Now it's up on Fifth Avenue out Central Park around uh, 80th Street near the museum. But it started down uh, in this old part of the city, down by Wall Street. Also. From the first, though the Jews weren't supposed to be here, there were no trading disabilities, there were no legal disabilities. Interestingly, Brown University, any Brown alumni? No? It's unusual in a Jewish group. Uh, Brown University in 1770, of course Rhode Island has a very liberal tradition because of Williams, but Brown, before the creation of the country, which is America, solicited money. Part of the money came to Brown from Jewish donors in Providence. And the statutes of Brown University say that there's no religious exclusion. You don't have to be a Christian to go to Brown University. 1770. When I was at Cambridge University in the late 60s, 17, 1960s, not 1760s, uh, the, the uh, Regis professor of Hebrew still had to be in Christian holy orders. Right? The Regis professor of Hebrew at Cambridge University had to be in Christian holy orders. Amazing. And uh, when Isaiah Berlin, a name some of you may know, was offered the uh, mastership of uh, All Souls, or was considered for the mastership of All Souls College, very ancient, very, very, very important position in Oxford society, he couldn't take it because he couldn't lead the services in chapel, which were part of the, the role of the master. So Sir Isaac Wolfson created a new college for him called Wolfson College, and he became the master. So there are only two Jews who have two colleges, one at Oxford and one at Cambridge. One is Jesus, and one is Isaac Wolfson. So 
1655, Asher Levy won the right to stand guard in New York. Now, that may seem a small matter, but you should know, in Europe, Jews were not allowed in the military. And that was a good thing, of course. We didn't get murdered in the wars, but it was a form of exclusion. You know the story of the Tsar uh, is at the front of the First World War, and he sees all the troops, and he says, I want you all to go out and fight bravely against the Germans. And a very ardent Russian young man jumps forward and says, sir, for you, I'm going to kill two Germans. And at that point, a little Jewish chassid is seen walking away. The Tsar says, where are you going? He says, what am I going to do there? He's going to kill my German. <laughs> so the fact is, there's no, this tradition of militarism sort of died with the uh, Hasmoneans. For 2,000 years, we didn't have Jewish soldiers. 1655. You all know Rembrandt's famous Night Watch, the painting, right? Which they, of course, did a terrible thing. They cropped it to make it fit. A very famous painting at the Rijksmuseum. That's the Night Watch. That was a great honor to be able to stand watch in the civil defense. In 1665, a Jew already stood watch in the civil defense of New York. It would take only after Napoleon would that be the case in Europe. In 1789, uh, 1718, two Jews were elected policemen in New York. And so it goes. I could give you other kinds of records of people who in the colonial era, let's say before 1776, were officially elected by their neighbors to represent them in things like provincial congresses, various colonial uh, political offices. Another influence I would call to your attention is the influence of Moranos. Now, this is not a subject we've talked a lot about. Most people don't think about it. The only time we usually think about Moranos is on Erev from Kippur when we go to Shul Kol Nidra and we read a footnote that says the Moranos would sneak into the synagogue and ask that they could pray, and that's why we have the prayer that we pray with sinners on Yom Kippur, right? Of course, they're not the only sinners in Shul, you should know. <laughs> but the fact is that, who are the, do all of you know who the Moranos were? They're, they're Jewish, the conversos, right? The, on the outside, Christian, on the inside, Jewish, sort of M&Ms. And the Moranos... The Moranos were important for this reason. The Moranos had lived as Christians. Very interesting phenomenon. They had lived as Christians. They lived as Christians in Spain. They lived in Christians in Portugal. Then they came and they lived as Christians in Amsterdam and some of the Protestant countries in England. For example, in the time of Elizabeth. We know there were conversos in England. Her physician was a converso. We know there were conversos in England. St. Teresa of Avila. Do you all of you know St. Teresa of Avila, the great Catholic mystic? She was of a converso family. All her brothers came to the New World. And she has a long history. You know, Franco used to carry around, he was very superstitious, this great Spanish dictator, used to carry around the right hand of Teresa of Avila in a box for good luck. So she had a hand in modern Spanish politics. <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, the Moranos are an amazing story. So they came to the New World, and they were used to being civil, civilians. They were being part of the body politic. They weren't like Jews in the ghetto in Eastern Europe. Oh, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I go home, sir. They were used to being in the inner sanctum of government. They were wealthy. They were influential. They were educated. The Moranos are an amazing story. They were bankers to the popes, bankers to all the royal families, bankers to the kings of Spain and Portugal. Came to America. They were used to participating in the public space. So from the first... We have Sephardic Jews, beginning with its Murano origins, who participate in a public space in America in a way they never did in Europe, certainly not till the 20th century. Also, of course, it's significant that this is a country of minorities. No one is uh, a majority, really, in America, at least not uh, for another few years when enough people from Mexico get here. And the fact is that in a country of minorities, what do you do? You form coalitions, one. And two, in a country that's a minority country, you try to check and balance each other. So for example, the Catholics who were minority, but they were running Maryland, they were very nervous that the Puritans might pass laws that affect them. So they weren't interested in passing laws, positive laws, meaning do this. They were more interested in passing laws that said the state can't do this, right? Controlling other forces. So the minority factor is important. Also, there's something interesting about that. In a country of minorities, it becomes legitimate to form in self-defense. I want to stress that. In Europe, it would be seen as in, in, 
proper as a, a form of treason, not being part of the public polity. But the fact is that the ADL, which you all know and does wonderful work, right? I'm sure you have a strong ADL in uh, California. Uh, the idea that that's un-American would be un-American, right? We think the ADL is an American institution. We fight for the rights of minorities. We fight for the rights of workers. Whoever gets in trouble, they even, uh, like the ACLU, fight for the rights of groups that sometimes say things that aren't sympathetic to Jews because they fight for the certain principles of freedom, independence, uh, whatever. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon about America. That means Jews from the first could make their case. Jews could write pamphlets, and they did. Jews could give sermons, and they did. Jews could use the ballot box to turn out anti-Semites. I mean, organize to do that, right? Get a group together and say, let's go vote against O'Malley. Let's go vote against so-and-so. All of that activity is justified by the nature of America. And indeed, I don't have time to discuss it, but if you read the Federalist Papers that you all know by Hamilton, you'll see there, there's a very, very articulate defense of something we'd never find in Europe, even to this day, which is called factions. So today in America, we have factions, and it's a good thing. We call them pluralist groups, right? We say there are Spanish groups, interest groups, and Irish interest groups, and Jew, and that's all very American. In Europe, it's not a, French. For example, the French idea of, of democracy is everybody has to be the same. That's why they have trouble with all groups that aren't French Catholics. Here in America, factions were part of the pluralistic environment. Of course, also, I need to say something uh, obvious. And that is that there, were no, there was no state religion. The first place in the history of the world with no state religion. I can't emphasize that enough. The Catholics in Maryland, for example, who I mentioned, were worried about the Protestants, so they wanted a limited. The Puritans were worried about the Catholics, so they wanted a limited. The Anabaptists who came and all the left-wing Protestant groups who came to America as part of the Counter-Reformation or running away, right? Remember, the, they were dissenters. They were running away from England when the king came back. So all the roundheads, all of Cromwell's followers, and all of those left-wing Puritans came to America. And the Quakers, of course, uh, had been persecuted bitterly. They came to Philadelphia. The Scotch and Irish came from Ireland, from being persecuted. The Huguenots, the French Protestants, came to America and were important. Now, all of this meant that from the first, America did something extraordinary. It is the first society in the history of the world that separated state and church. That is the most fundamental of all the things I think I've talked about tonight relative to the American experience. And it's something we should value very highly. We should be very careful about, because there's a lot of pressure today to try to move that boundary. On the one hand, it comes from the Christian right, who wants to move the boundary. And on the other hand, even some Jewish groups want to move the boundary for practical reasons. Namely, running Jewish schools is very expensive. So they want to move the boundary in some sense so that the funding for some of the schooling will come from state agencies. So this is a complicated issue, and it's very much of our time. You know, this is always uh, part of our, our cultural conversation. But the fact is that this separation of church and state has been a great blessing. The First and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution deal with it. And also, it's very interesting as a practical matter. When Jews came to the United States, the arrival of Jews in America did not create any sort of great backlash. Because of the separation of church and state, because of the liberalism that I've described to you, you didn't get any great anti-Jewish uprising in various quarters. You didn't get pamphlets. You didn't get political movements. Let's throw out the Jews. That only would come in the 1920s. Uh, when the immigration law, but I'm talking about the early American experience. America's government never changed its policies till the 1920s based on religion, right? Too many of certain religion are coming. In our case, uh, Jews are coming. They never tried to pass other laws to decrease the influence of Jews in America. Here I would say, parenthetically, also it probably was a good thing the reformed Jews came early because the reformed Jews emphasized what? that Judaism is a faith, not a people, not a nationalism. So when they came as a faith, and America believed that faith is a private matter, then Reformed Jews could be, right, when all the other faiths were, were going to some parade or some public uh, uh, occasion or some public recognition. So you had Protestants, you had Lutherans, you had Calvinists, you had Reformed Jews. They were all a faith. No one was 
challenging uh, the state in its uh, most fundamental sense as another state. Another feature of America that I think has been very valuable is urbanization. And that again may seem like something we don't think about, but the fact is that urbanization is important. Remember Jews lived not in the countryside, but in cities already in the Middle Ages. We were numerate and we were literate. When America became urbanized and capitalist, rather than as Jefferson hoped, which was a kind of gentleman farmers, you all know Jefferson wanted America to be gentleman farmers. Everybody would have his own black slaves that he could sleep with like he did. And it would be a very social, very nice kind of way to spend an evening. <laughs> so this uh, phenomenon, however, did not catch on. Instead, capitalism took root, and capitalism, was, of course, required cities, and therefore the city became the dominant form of life. And of course, culturally also, culture takes place in cities, right? So New York City uh, is, a, is a great cultural center for opera, for TV, for newspaper, the New York Times, whatever you think of it, right? The fact is, that's the newspaper of record. If it does, it's not in the New York Times. Jewish organizations don't think it happened. Uh, <laughs> Newspaper is, uh, coincides with TV, with uh, radio years ago, with the stock market, with the great banks, uh, with the opera, with all kinds of institutions. Between New York and California, maybe with some small allowance for Chicago, there's really nothing. <laughs> and it's a great wasteland. So tomorrow, if Montana disappeared, it would take, take CNN a week to find out. <laughs> Do any of you get up in the morning and say, what's happening in Montana? Right? When was the last time you thought that? No, nobody cares about Montana, Wyoming, all these guys places. They're of no interest, right? The places that are of interest are big cities where Jews are disproportionately influential. And we're disproportionately influential because cities play to our strength. We're numerate, we're literate, we're good with money, we organize, we know how to live in cities. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Had America decided to go in Jefferson's way, we would have been much less influential. The fact that America chose to be an urban society. In effect, not only urbanization, but in general, the idea of cities, of hard work, of education, all these values, which are Jewish values, also became the values of American societies, much to our benefit. They could have adopted other society values, right? They could have come to have society values of agriculture or that didn't value education. There are societies that don't value education the same way, right? Uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to be making invidious distinctions. Poland, uh, where you put pickles in jars for a living, right? That's not high culture. So this kind of thing is important. Also, you should understand a very important thing, that from the first, America was what I would call a post-emancipation society. What does it mean a post-emancipation society? I've been talking about the 18th century before 1776, after 1776. I mean the following. Some of you have been coming to uh, the lectures on modernity, and you know I talked a little bit about the Jewish question, right? The Jewish question, namely, what are we going to do with the Jews in modernity? And that issue is a burning issue, a basic, central, unresolved issue from the time of the Renaissance and Reformation until the Shoah, where Hitler said, I have the solution, the endlosing, the, the final solution to the Jewish problem. We'll immolate the Jews. We'll put them in gas chambers. In America, now that issue of the Jewish question was tied up, and it's still tied up in Europe, with the problem of modernity, the problem of emancipation. Pre-emancipation Jewry is not a problem because we're in ghettos, right? Pre-emancipation Jewry is living under disabilities. Pre-emancipation Jewry has to know its place. Post-emancipation Jewry are citizens. Post-emancipation Jewry can do what it wants. There are no more ghettos. Post-emancipation Jewry can go to universities, can go to the stock markets, can go to the press, wherever. That's where we're a problem. We're free. We're getting out into the general culture, and we're dominating it, said the anti-Semites. So in Europe, even to this day, the issue of emancipation is a profound issue. You know, they asked Mao what he thought of the French Revolution, and he said, it's too soon to tell. And that was a very profound remark, because if you followed, some of you may know, if you followed the debate in France, in 1989, 200 years after the French Revolution, there was an enormous number of books. There were an enormous number of books published 
many of them critical of the French Revolution and its legacy of liberalism and freedom. And you see that being played out in French politics by Le Pen. Right, you all, do all, you all follow the, you know, the right-wing anti-Semitic and now anti-Muslim Le Pen. But that's true all over Europe. The idea of Jews as being citizens is still an argument made, or an argument against it is made by the right in many places. That Jews aren't really part of this society. They don't belong here. They shouldn't be given rights. They shouldn't be given freedoms. Even today, you find in a right-wing group, say, in post-Soviet Poland. You find it in Russia, of course. Remember Zhirinovsky, the Meshuganah, who was such a rabid anti-Semite, though actually is a Jew, and uh, very strange things. But in America, there was never a debate. Even before emancipation, you might say emancipation existed in America. And the reason is that America was the laboratory of the Enlightenment. All these liberal ideas were being discussed by Voltaire and Montesquieu and uh, Baron de Holbach in Europe, but they weren't instantiated till 1789. In America, they were already instantiated in the 17th and 18th centuries, right from the beginning. That's who we were. We were built on these kinds of liberal, important ideas. So in effect, there's never been in America a Jewish problem. That doesn't mean there hasn't been anti-Semites, but politically, right? No government in America has ever asked, for example, for a census of religion. Nobody counts Jews. We count Jews. We're obsessed with it. But the Goyim don't count Jews, right? And therefore, you've never had in America any state-supported anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean you haven't had anti-Semitism. The closest we've had, of course, is uh, during the Civil War, when some of the generals wanted to bar Jews from doing business with the military. But Lincoln, when he heard about it, immediately stepped in to cancel that. Now, there's private anti-Semitism. I'm sure someone told me that Orange County 30 years ago was Judenrein, that Jews weren't allowed allowed to move in here. I also, for a friend, I prepared a document for a legal case about a uh, community of all places in Connecticut where families were not, where Jewish families were not allowed to buy uh, property. This is very recently, uh, including, I won't tell you whom, but some very great Jewish families with unbelievable wealth and uh, prestige. But what I uh, discovered in doing this uh, work is that San Diego was Judenrein. And it, the breaking of the Jewish exclusion in, in La Jolla came with the building of the State University. The president of the State University said to the realtors and to the mayor, if you don't let Jews in, I can't build a first-rate university. And then they found out that Jews had money and could pay even more than the guy in for the houses. So the realtors went along. And now, of course, La Jolla is a very Jewish, I understand the sixth largest Jewish city in America or something. Some very large number of assimilated Jews. Now, the fact that, I don't know if that statistic of sixth is correct. It was told to me by somebody from San Diego, so it's dubious. <laughs> now, there has been private anti-Semitism like that. You can't live here, you can't live there, right? But it's not a big thing. So you can't live in some place. So the, you can't belong to a country club. So you get a couple of guys together from B'nai B'rith, you buy the country club, you put up condominiums. The problem is not, right, it's, it's not in Super Bowl. So the fact is private anti-Semitism is not really consequential. It's unpleasant. There was numerous clauses in university, but it's not consequential in the way political anti-Semitism. Political anti-Semitism says that I, the state, can make the laws, which mean I say you are not human and you can go and be a guest, and that's legal, right? So there's a difference. In America, we've never had those kinds of things. Now, for all these reasons, America has really been a different experience. If you look at the positive aspects uh, of the American Jewish community, one is simply astonished. We're the wealthiest community in history the wealthiest community in history. There is no community, I don't mean Jewish community, I mean any community, no community. We're way, way past the Episcopalians who are the closest rivals uh, to us. Secondly, and very importantly, the source of a lot of our wealth is that we're the best educated community in the history of the world. We have three times the number of doctors per capita, four times the number of lawyers, many times the number of PhDs, and you see this uh, in our young people, right? When our young people get to 18, everybody goes to college. And that's an accepted thing. Gentiles, it's an open thing. About half of them go. Over 90% of Jewish children go to college. In addition, if you look at the Ivy League schools, 
uh, you'll see something very remarkable. The age group, 18, 19-year-old American Jews, is at certainly under 2% of the general population. Harvard, until recently, had 35% Jewish kids. Now it's a little lower because of the Asians. Dartmouth, where I taught, when I started my career, I remember the director of admissions came, and I said to him, you have a Jewish quota. It was 10% since World War II. He said, no, Professor Katz, we have a Jewish target. So the fact was, there was 10%, but that was still five times the national average. And then when President Friedman became the president, it went up to about 18 20%. Yale has a very, I guess, about a quarter. Even Princeton, which at one time, that's you know the most uh, southern of the Ivy League schools in its mentality, uh, I think now has about 15 or 20% in a freshman class. I remember one year, I don't know if it was in your time, Ari, that they sent, Princeton University sent recruiters, can you imagine, recruiters to come to the Maimonides School to recruit students with a, with a kippah to go to, to Princeton, right? It was, it was really astonishing. Maimonides, which would graduate 30 kids, 40 kids, we get more kids into Harvard than the whole state of Texas. So it was, it was an astonishing thing. So what we have really in America is what I call a satocracy. A satocracy is a group ruled by high SAT scores, right? <laughs> and that's... That's where Jews uh, are superior. We have four very significant rabbinical seminaries, right? And they have various wings. HUC has a place in LA and Cincinnati and New York, as well as in Yerushalayim. JTS, I think they split now, but started with UJ, was a, a satellite, and now it's a separate. So really more than four, there's seven or eight, if you count the separate ones. And uh, that's not inconsequential. It produces Clay Kodish, produces rabbis by the thousands, cantors, I think Marsh is a graduate of JTS, it produces educators, it produces, you know, all the, all the functionaries of, of a living community. You need teachers, you need cantors, you need uh, rabbis, you don't need squash, but you need all the other things, <laughs> right? Also, uh, you, need, you need major libraries. It's astonishing. UCLA has a great library and actually has a, had a great uh, Jewish um, librarian. Berkeley has a great library, though of course at Berkeley everything's been stolen. But the fact is that uh, it's amazing. Florida, the University of Florida has a great Jewish library. University of Texas. Now in Texas they can't even read English. What are they doing with Hebrew books? But they have great Hebrew collection at the University of Texas. It's a sign, I guess, of, of culture uh, like it was in the Renaissance. Uh, the publication of Jewish books, right? You all see enormous publication of Jewish books, and interestingly, by major publishers. It's no longer by Feldheim, by uh, Bloch, right? Remember the old Jewish publishers. Now, Random House publishes Jewish books, and uh, Brown uh, produces Jewish books, and all the major university presses fight over getting good Jewish books for their list. Oxford, Cambridge, Stanford, all the major university presses. Also, we have unprecedented political influence. Don't tell anyone. But if you look at the number of Jews in the current Congress and Senate, it's astonishing, right? It's a really astonishing. I forget the exact number. I think it's 11%. Wow. Uh, and even those who are nominally Christian are Jews on the inside. So, for example, Sarbanes from Sarbanes-Oxley, he has a Jewish son-in-law. Uh, Pelosi, I understand, has some kind of Jewish connections. Hillary had a Jewish grandmother, grandfather, something. Uh, last election, uh, what was who ran for the Democrats? Uh, uh, Kerry had a Jewish, uh, what, grandfather, right? Uh, the general, uh, what's his name? Wes, uh, Wes Clark. Wes Clark had a Jewish mother. Uh, father, was it? Oh, Nachbesser. Uh, so the fact is that it's astonishing. You can't run for public office unless you have had a Jewish father, mother, grandfather, or somebody who slept with your father or mother, right? <laughs> so the fact is, it's really an amazing story. I don't know about Schwarzenegger, but, uh, uh, right? And, uh, but, but, but Schwartz, right? He says, Schwartz, uh, Nira says it's Schwartz. But so it's really astonishing. And it's grew 2% of the American population. And from states where there are no Jews, Minnesota. I remember there was a, a, an election in Minnesota. The two candidates were Jewish, Wellman and the man before him. No, the before him, the one who lost out. And the debate, what? Boskowitz, Randy, Bo Randy Boskowitz. And the debate was over who was more Jewish. 
That was what turned the election in Minnesota with all the Scandinavians. Who was more Jewish, right? And then Wellman was now, again, Jews. In, you have them in the South. You have them in con congressional districts. You have Levin representing all the Arabs in Detroit. Uh, it's an astonishing, it's an, a really an astonishing thing. And of course, our involvement in political giving. I won't tell you how much Jews give to political parties. Uh, my wife and I were having a conversation one night with the fundraiser for the Democratic Party when Bill Clinton was president, and he gave us a number. My wife and I were both so shocked, we asked him please never to tell it in public because it was an astonishing number. If you would see what Jews give in every level of politics, from local politics to national politics, it's extraordinary. Also, corporate leadership, right? We weren't able to have corporate leadership, and now you have major. Michael Eisner went to Disney. Disney was, as I understand, not so sympathetic to Jews. You, what? Sandy oh, Sandy Weil, City Corps, right? DuPont had a, had a Shapiro was the head uh, Jewish executive. I'm sure <laughs> you will all know better than I uh, which companies. This is not my area of expertise, but you know the Jews were not welcome, and now they run big boardrooms. These are major, major corporations. Also, of course, uh, we have on the Jewish uh, side, not only on the general side, we have tremendous uh, growth and uh, creativity. When I started my professorial career, wasn't that many decades ago, I remember we used to meet as a professional society, the Association of Jewish Studies, about 50 of us at the Harvard Faculty Club on Thanksgiving weekend because the university was closed and we could use the faculty club. And the secretary of the society was Charlie Berlin, the librarian at Harvard. He would arrange to use the faculty club. Now, Two months ago in San Diego at the Hyatt Hotel, I didn't come, but I was told there were close to 2,000 people at the uh, conference. I know that there was well over 2,000 graduate students in the United States doing Jewish studies. You have big programs at UCLA, big programs at Berkeley, you have programs at San Diego and Santa Barbara. <clears throat> in every college in America, there are Judaica courses, some more, some less. Hebrew is taught. And I understand over 600 colleges in the United States, which is not a small matter. And of course, there's a decline of anti-Semitism, right? If you look at indicators, people, now people don't always tell the truth, but to the degree that they always lied, they lie now in a different way than they used to. And they say that they would be happy to have Jews as sons-in-law, daughters-in-law, presidents. And we saw that with Lieberman, right? Lieberman came this close to being the vice president. And the reason he isn't vice president is because of a Jewish lady in Florida, right? <laughs> you know this, don't you know the story? There was, no, no, not Harris. There was a little Jewish lady who made up the, the ballot in Broward County, and she didn't know how to do it, and she made it so confused that they voted instead when they thought they were voting. All these elderly Jewish citizens voted for Buchanan, <laughs> and even Buchanan said, they, these Jews didn't vote for me. And she was interviewed and she said, I'll never do this again. So the whole history of the world was shaped by a little Jewish lady in Broward County. It's true. It's absolutely MS. That's, you know, you think of important things run the world. But this little Jewish lady changed because then we got Bush. And whether you like Bush or not, it's your own pick. But the history of the world was changed by the ballot in Broward County, a few votes. Now, all of this is to the good, which is to say the American Jewish community is extraordinary. And of course, on top of the professors, on top of uh, the very large number of children getting an intense Jewish education in day schools, we're in a day school building here of recent vintage. Someone said $100 million was spent on the campus here. The, you know, it's a lot, it's a really a lot of money. And on top of it all, the most important thing in the American Jewish community, of course, you have the community scholar program. So the fact is, this is an amazing success story. So we could say, really, Dianu, this is an amazing story. There are negative things on the horizon. I started by mentioning the demographic factors, and that's the big cloud. Everything you can do to change the demographic profile is to the good. If you can get more uh, people to be affiliated, you know, whatever the rate, if it goes from 15 to 30, that would, in Los Angeles, that would be a big, that would be thousands, right? That would be a big number. If you could get more Jews to marry other Jews, that would have consequences, because one in four children born of intermarriage at most are raised as Jewish, right? So intermarriage is a significant loss. Uh, 
If you could get uh, the birth rate up, the birth rate, as you know, is, is low. We don't have a replacement birth rate. And in fact, I would say to Ari that instead of organizing scholars and residents, he should organize orgies. <laughs> you see, if, if he really wants to make a practical contribution, he should, weekends, orgies, then the population would grow and burgeon, and it would be more significant than having lectures, honestly. So uh, I highly. You know, that's the first sparkle I've seen in Ari's face since I got here. <laughs> so the fact is that the demographic picture is, is frankly bleak. Between intermarriage, disaffiliation, low birth rates, we have a very serious crisis. Now, that doesn't mean that it's anti-Semitism. It means that there's an internal erosion, and it's the flip side of the positive. We're now so welcome that we can marry, right, that the uh, John Kennedy's daughter, I forget her name, married, married a Jewish psychologist, right? Uh, uh, Gore's daughter met and married a Jewish boy at Harvard. Uh, I forget his name, but uh, Schiff. Uh, so you see in all, all the best families, the vice president, and Gore comes from an old Yichistic family in, uh, in Tennessee, uh, right? He's not a newcomer to politics. His father already was a senator, very significant. And you even, uh, what's her name? Uh, who does uh, NPR, the, uh, Justice, uh, what's her name? Uh, no, no, not Nina Totenberg. Her father is a professor of music at Boston University, a famous pianist. But um, I think Koki Roberts is married to a Jewish, to a Jewish boy, she, you know, and because uh, I know Koki for a long time, since she was an undergraduate at Wellesley, she liked Jewish men. Uh, so, so, the fact is that uh, this phenomenon of uh, demographics is a significant factor. And with that, I think uh, I will conclude by just saying the American Jewish experience is really unprecedented. It's remarkable. It's been wonderful. And we now are living in a golden age, really a golden age. Uh, I don't know if this will continue in the same way because of the demographic factors. In a democracy, numbers do count. Maybe not immediately, but they must play themselves out over time. You see that now in Europe with the Muslim in-migration, which is having very serious consequences. But the future is open. But to this point, reaching its pinnacle in the Community Scholars Program, the American Jewish community is amazing. Thank you very much.